Welcome to Deckert's Committed Capital, where private equity leaders open their playbooks to discuss today's trends. Good morning and welcome to our private equity podcast. The theme today is European retaliation. I'm Sabina Comis, a tax and funds partner in the Paris office of Deckert. And joining me today is an exciting group of panelists from the asset management industry. Let me turn it over to them to briefly introduce themselves. So, Jessica, would you like to go first? Hello, Sabina. Hello, Mark. Hello, everyone. I'm Jessica Salam. I'm a managing director at Rothschild Co. Wealth Management in charge of private markets for France, Belgium and Monaco. At Rothschild Co. Wealth Management, we are proposing a private equity solution and private investment solution to wealthy individuals, building diversified portfolio of investment in the private markets area. Thank you, Jessica. Uh, Mark, do you want to jump in? Hi, I'm Mark Tucker. So I'm responsible for building KKR's private wealth business in Europe. Um, we're several years into building a very large European private wealth presence. And prior to joining uh, one year ago, I'd spent 16 years across UBS and HSBC working in private markets and, and private wealth. I've got five or six main topics I'd like to pick your brain on and, and have tried to have a lively discussion with you today. And, and the first one, just to set the scene, uh, is the plain observation that retalization of private equity is a growing phenomenon. Jessica, let's maybe start with you. What do you think explains this movement? Why now? I think it's not now. Uh, it started about 10 to 12 years ago, starting with entrepreneurs um, who met with private equity funds and private equity teams uh, when selling their company and uh, basically getting rich. And they realized that they could also have uh, uh, a way to invest in these funds uh, in this area. And they were looking for diversification. Uh, as well as for performance. And obviously, private equity investment uh, just happened to be a very good way to access different companies, better performing assets. And, and of course, they were also really believing in the way that private equity is making value, is adding value to investments. So they started with a need of diversification. And now it, we, we all realize that part of the economy is now private and would stay private. So there are more and more companies and interesting companies that are private. And uh, it's the only way to access the whole economy by having part of the portfolio in public markets and the other part of the portfolio in, in private markets. And in the meantime, uh, private markets are more mature and you, you, you can build a diversified portfolio between equity, debt, infrastructure, real estate in private assets. So I think those are the, the, the reason why we have more and more private individuals investing in, in private markets. So that's interesting because that's the, I would say, the, the bankers, the private bankers point of view. And so let's now switch to, I don't want to say the other side of the spectrum because we are on the same, you know, on the same field here, but to, to the asset management and the, the, the sponsor side. Mark, is your view any different? No, I'd say it's a similar view, maybe just with a slightly different uh, perspective. So, but I, I'd agree as well, this isn't a new phenomenon. Uh, we at KKR have raised over $25 billion in the last 10 years from private wealth clients. So uh, clearly people have been investing in in scale in this industry for a while and in, enjoying the good performance for that time. I think what has happened in the last few years is there's been a lot more momentum 
I think, behind uh, the trend. And so I think we've seen a lot more groups being interested. And I think there's a real happy confluence of events. Now, firstly, clients more broadly have seen the need for alternatives, especially in this last year. If you look at what happens to equities and bonds and, and the correlations there, I think people can really now see the value in these alternatives maybe much more than they, they used to. And there's a lot more transparency on performance, which has helped that. I think in addition to the client side, I think on the, the private banking side, there's also been a desire to create differentiation amongst the products that are being offered and, and you know, adding alternatives as a way of uh, you know, adding some of that differentiation alongside the more traditional asset classes. And so there's been a lot of desire from, you know, from private banks to also offer these kinds of products. And then finally, you've had the alternative asset managers that you know, are also facing a institutional world that is slowing down. And if you look at some of the some of the large pots of capital that have historically fed um, asset managers. Some of those now are very mature and a bit more slower growing. And so at the same time, uh, private wealth has become very interesting to them now as a way to add more clients. And I think the bottom line is all of those are going on at the same time. And I think the, the end result actually is a lot more value for private wealth individuals. I think when you look at the you know, some of the strategies that are being created, which are a bit more tailored for wealth, if you look at the solutions that, that wealth managers are now able to access, which are a bit more scalable, I think actually everyone's getting something which is um, uh, a bit more interesting than in the past. But I think it's just a bit more accelerated trend in the last couple of years. So the theme is retailization. And both of you have used the buzzword, which is private wealth. And so that that is a nice segue to something I, I would like to hear you both on, which is uh, what do you actually mean by retail investors? Well, I think the word retail investor is more a regulatory term uh, that has been given to uh, non-professional investors, meaning that professional investors are mostly institutional investors. We at Rothschild & Co. within private banks, and, and I think Mark is also targeting this kind of people, who are wealthy individuals able to invest a part of their wealth in illiquid assets because that's the that's the key point of private market obviously and the main question will then be what is the minimum amount of wealth that is needed to invest properly in this area in this asset class and now we have to turn to the minimum investment size minimum investment ticket that we we, we face in private equity funds or direct lending funds which is mainly for institutional products between you know, 5 to 20 million euros or dollars. And with the regulatory constraints that we have, we can go up to uh, well, minimum at a minimum of 100k euro or 125k euros in, in Europe. So if you imagine that you will have at least five investments to have a diversified portfolio, this is leading you to a 500k euros of minimum investment ticket in private markets. And this could not be the whole part of your wealth, obviously. So imagine that it is 10%, which is something that we, we, we expect to have in private wealth portfolio. Remember that the European market is 05 to 1% of individual wealth invested in private markets, which is nothing. The target is more about 8 to 10%. So at least you will need to have 5 million euros financial wealth to address properly private markets in an individual institutional way and and that's where people like Kekera could also help with designing solution especially for private individuals 
And, and, and Jessica, before Mark jumps in, I'm, I'm going to ask a bit of a polemical question there, because you see, for me, when we talk about retaliation, I, I thought that we would try and put the, the entry ticket, let's put it this way, much lower than what we're discussing here. And I thought that was the ambition of this market is, is to really go to lower amounts and hence have a wider number of subscriptions. Uh, Mark, how, how do you feel about that? What, what, what Jessica described in my last question? I would agree. I mean, a lot of the efforts that are being uh, put into private wealth are being targeted at the kinds of clients that are uh, already a client of a private bank. And you know, these are typically clients that would have uh, multimillionaires, you know, multi-million dollar uh, deposits of a bank. And so um, they might be a MIFID you know, retail client, but you know, in, in my sense or your sense, maybe you wouldn't consider them to be a retail investor. Uh, but that's by and large the avenue that, that's being targeted today. And it's for very logical reasons, because you know, the private banks provide very sophisticated advice to those clients, and they, they provide a very uh, useful conduit for asset managers to, to reach those clients. Uh, and when you look at the genuine retail space um, in terms of wealth, the kinds of savings and investment vehicles that those investors use are just very different. Um, and maybe that's the next frontier. Maybe the next frontier is to, you know, to think of ways to access those kinds of savings and investment vehicles. But the kinds of vehicles those retail investors use are very different. And, and some of them actually are uh, much more complicated to solve for putting private markets in as an allocation. Uh, but this world of, of clients that invest with private banks, a part of the problem historically has been that 90% plus of those may be classified as retail. And so, um, you know, a, a big part of the objective here is just to design vehicles and products that allows a private bank to sell to 100% of their client base, um, not the maybe 10% that might qualify as a professional investor. And so I think that's that's what a lot of the, the focus is at the moment, is just coming up with these vehicles that allow you know, Jessica and, and Rothschilds to, to have something they can speak to every client about. Um, once that pretty monumental task has been achieved, you know, maybe the, the next frontier is to move beyond that. Uh, but to do that, you're really talking a very, um, you know, very local structures in, uh, in France or in the UK, which, you know, at the moment are a lot more complicated to try and figure out how you would solve for those. I would add that we as experts as well in, in that industry, we feel that is precisely the point now is to try and see how we can structure vehicles that answer those those requests you've just set out, those constraints you've just set out. and But I think we all need to be very ambitious here and try and reconcile the, the, the items we, we've described. So, and again, this this is about ambition and about barriers is, is my next uh, point of discussion, which is we know that when we're seeking retail investors, or however we want to describe them, high net worth, uh, investors into private funds, fund managers will face certain obvious barriers. Uh, and, and I'd like to hear about those because those are very practical ones. And I'd be interested to see what, what your views are on this. But let's start this one with you, Mark, this time. Yeah, so this is one which is very front and center of our minds. So uh, again, going back to the point I made about us initially trying to find you know a way of designing strategies that allow a private bank to sell to 100% of their client base, um, quite often the threshold isn't just regulatory. It's not about just is this a professional investor product or not. Quite often it's the complexity that stands in the way. And um, you know, when you look at the current private equity setup, it's really the end product of 20 years of institutional feedback from balance sheet investors. Uh, and that's why these funds work the way they do. And they're often quite complicated even for private equity professionals to, you know, to manage all these capital calls and different currencies and 
drawdown profiles. So a large part of, uh, I think, the answer for private wealth is if you really are going to get traction and penetration, is to actually design strategies where you actually take away some of that complexity. And a lot of the times it's that complexity, which means a, an advisor in a bank might sometimes be a little bit of afraid that they could be embarrassed by a client, uh, you know, being asked a question they don't they can't answer because it's a complex product and they don't maybe fully understand it. And so at every wealth firm that I've ever worked at, most of the sales came from a very small number of clients in the client base and a very small number of advisors, you know, a percentage point or two of the advisors generating 80% of the sales because of that complexity. It just put people off. And so I think a large part of the challenge here is to reimagine how you design strategies and products to give people the same institutional experience of deal flow and the performance, but instructors just make it a lot easier for a wealth firm to position with clients, for a banker to position with their clients, and for the actual end client to understand and experience. And I think if you can do that, then that's part of the answer as to how do you sell to 100% of a client base somewhere. It's not just about removing the regulatory barriers. It's about removing some of those other barriers that quite often mean that you, you, you can't get the kind of penetration you want with institutional products um, from all of your, you know, your private wealth client base. And, and, and Mark, we have not rehearsed this, but I, I suspect knowing Rothschild well enough and Jessica that this is music to your ears. In other words, I, I suspect you would say something along those lines, wouldn't you? I mean, doesn't this resonate with, with what you face? Of course, uh, we're doing that for 15 years now, and still we don't have a 100% it ratio, either on private bankers or in clients. And the complexity is coming from many, many ways. It's coming from liquidity. It's coming from the way funds are working with the capital calls, meaning that you need to make sure that uh, the client will pay all the capital calls. And, and that's that's a key point for the bank and for the client, for the bank first, because obviously uh, you cannot be sure that the client will stay, will remain a client for five years long or 10 years long. So obviously this is part of the complexity of institutional products. Uh, there are also um, complexity to access good GPs to, you know, the due diligence process for uh the ability to, 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 to get space in the good GPs, in the good funds, uh, such as KKR, of course. Uh, you also have tax issues that are very local. And more of that, uh, sometimes it's different from depending on the shelf that you use to invest. Holding companies, direct investment, life insurance wrappers or something like that that you can use uh, in, in, in wealth management. And obviously, the, the, the main point will be education that you mentioned, education of advisors and of clients because they don't know this asset class and they need to have more education to be aware of the risk and aware of the opportunity that that are uh, in, um, in that makes the fund so those are i think the main barriers to entry and probably the the last one uh, will be how you integrate this kind of products within the business model of the bank which is something very important because obviously this is illiquid assets, so it's not coming at the same level of all the liquid assets that you have, such as mutual funds, trackers, and so on. So uh, those are all the barriers to entry to expand private equity and private markets 
uh, in to the wealth management space. Uh, and, 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 and thank you both for this, because this is typically the, the practical hurdles I wanted to, to hear about. And by the way, I hope you noticed that you mentioned tax and structuring issues, and I didn't interrupt you, and I didn't take the chance to tell you all about this, because this podcast is not the place for this. Um, Jessica, I've got a specific question for you, which is, and we, we have this question quite often, which is, it's about investment strategies. Is Do you think when you're raising for that kind of investors, there is a specific investment strategy that is more attractive? Do you think that, for example, it needs to be thematic uh, fund structuring with a sustainability focus? We hear a lot about ESG-focused strategies. Do you have a view on this, or is the strategy not the center of it? Well, first, we are building portfolios. We're not choosing financial products. It's not the same way to, to address the points. So when building portfolio, of course, you will balance the risk and the rewards that you expect. So as of today, obviously, most of the portfolio are invested in the buyout space, uh, which is the part of the market in which you find more balanced returns with a, you know, toward a risk profile. So then, obviously, we will need to find strategies that are suitable to was individuals that needs to be easy to understand. And that's a very important point because what individuals are really sticking in private markets is understanding the way value is created. So uh, probably simple strategy with very uh, identified value creation levers. And you mentioned sustainability. Of course, it's embedded because you are buying a business for five years and in five years you will need to sell it for someone else who will believe in it for, for the five years after. So obviously it has to be sustainable. It's not about green or not. It's about sustainability. And I don't think it's, is it sustainable or not? It has to be. And the regulator has also um, done a lot of work in that direction with SFDR asking for, what's man for asset manager and GPs to, to make sure that uh, investments are, are sustainable. So that's interesting because, and, and your answer does surprise me a little bit because you're saying ultimately your investor, when you present that to your clients, they will look at the investment strategy and they will want to understand the investment strategy. And therefore there is, again, an intuitive persona, there is an exchange with who the managers are, but it's not only that, it's also the, the investment strategy. And to some extent, I think it's very good to hear. I think we can move on from that because I, I'd like to hear Mark and KKR's view on, on two other uh, topics that are more um, acute, I think, for a fund manager, which is, and this is going to be a little bit more technical, but we know that there is now a vehicle that is called LTIF. LTIF is a subset of, of IMF and it's a specific type of fund. And uh, I'd like to know, Mark, whether you've ever considered that vehicle and if so, why or if so, why not? Yes, and well, obviously the the LTIF is. Uh, for those of you who don't know, there there should be a, a revised set of rules that hopefully come into play in the first quarter of next year. So that there's almost a version one, version two discussion. And you now we we have looked at those, and um, I would say the version one, it's difficult to achieve with it. The um, one of the objectives we had of just providing investors with the same institutional experience as our institutional investors. So when we look at LTIF one. Um, there were just some of the complexities it introduced about how uh, it needed to be invested, the kinds of assets that it touched. It made it very difficult just for us and the setup we've got 
to make that work in a number of areas and, and end up with uh, a product that we, we felt would have the same institutional experience. Um, so the version one, I think, is proven a bit more difficult, although it has got a lot more traction this year. I think there's been a lot more of these launched in the last 12 months. And the first couple of years, it was, it was quite dormant. I, I think from what we've seen for the, the second version, which is coming in, in Q1, I think a lot of those complexities seem as if they're being removed. Um, I think there was just far too prescriptive an approach in the past on the way these things had to be operated, the kind of assets they could touch. Uh, and from what appears to be the, the current draft proposals, you know, a lot of that seems to be removed. And I think this could become a really powerful tool within Europe because um, to go back to one of the, the, the features that we talked about earlier, you know, obviously the, the professional investor barrier is a really important one in Europe and it's, it's proven very problematic for people to find a very homogenized way of getting past that um, and selling to private wealth clients across Europe. On the face of it, the second LTIF will, will do that, but it will also do that in a way which um, hopefully is a bit more user-friendly for asset managers. So I could see that becoming a you know, actually a very key part of our strategy here in uh, in Europe. Um, obviously, we just have to touch wood and wait to see what the final proposal is, hopefully in, in Q1 that's uh, approved. Glad you were saying that because we've, we've been quite a few doing a lot of lobbying on that because, as you said, version one was too tricky and hopefully version two will, will, will take us there and that, that will be a nice opening of the market. Um, we've got four minutes left. I've got one last question. I think it's still for you, Mark. It's uh, outside of the, the structuring of uh, alternative vehicles for directly attracting uh, retail investment. Some asset managers have listed their own equity on stock exchanges. So they thereby giving investors access to returns in large part uh, determined by the performance of the underlying funds under management. Uh, is this something that you have or would be willing to take on? How is KKR positioning themselves in in that respect? Yeah, so it's a very relevant question. So obviously, KKR has been listed for, for, for quite some time. And so you know, we have our own perspective on it. I mean, quite often we get this question of, is that a good proxy for investing into no, a KKR fund, or is it? You know, is a listed stock a good proxy for investing into any underlying private equity fund? I would say that they're very different things. When you look at the the way the public market is looked at, um, listed alternative investment managers, uh, it's largely placed a big premium on the management fees that have been generated, and it's largely struggled with the unpredictability of performance fees. So obviously, performance fees are unpredictable. Sometimes they go up, sometimes they go down. So when you look at any listed alternative investment manager, um, there's a very big difference in the value that the public markets have placed on on those two elements. And you know, as a result, the share price is just driven by very, very different things. And it's made volatile by very, very different perceptions of what might be happening in the future with, uh, with these groups. So it hasn't really tracked the performance of any of the funds. Now, if you look at those groups that have listed, you know, those groups are largely the more well-known groups that have had great track records, great experience, great pedigree. Um, and if you look at their underlying fund performance versus their under, you know, their, their listed stock performance, you know, there's probably been very little correlation between the two. They're just fundamentally tracking very different facts. Interesting because that, so is it, is it a fair takeaway to say that, you know, people like KKR would look at both, but it's two different types of business cases and strategies and that one doesn't supersede the other? Yeah, so I think if you look at these two, they're, they're completely different, um, uh, driven by completely different financial drivers. So the, the, the listed stock prices for alternative managers are generally driven by a view on management fees. 
And obviously, the underlying investments are typically just driven by the pure value creation in the underlying portfolio. And so those two things, you know, just result in very different outcomes for, um, you know, for, for any investor in both of them. They could be both great, but they, they could also be completely uncorrelated at different points. Very clear. And because we are time barred, I could go on for quite a while. Um, I just want to thank you both for joining me today for your insight. It was a pleasure discussing with you and uh, say goodbye. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Deckert's Committed Capital. Please subscribe and for more information, visit Deckert.com.